Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's 2019 film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, but with an almost uncountable number of stars and supporting roles. High-level plot summary, it's 1969 Hollywood. DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton, a former TV star. Pitt plays his longtime stunt double, and both of them are trying to make things work. Oh, and Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate, who happens to be Dalton's neighbor. Hijinks ensue. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 85%, and the critics' consensus reads, thrillingly unrestrained yet solidly crafted, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tempers Tarantino's provocative impulses with the clarity of a mature filmmaker's vision. Here on Below the Line, we're not focused on what the critics thought, but as we're recording this episode, we're on the doorstep of Oscar season, and it would not surprise me if this film was part of the conversation. My first guest today is Mark Ulano, production sound mixer. Mark, when we recorded the Majestic episode last season, you mentioned that you had just wrapped the Tarantino film. I asked you to come back and tell us about it, and here you are. So what would you like to know? <laughs> Mark, we're gonna we're gonna dive deep into that once we get through everybody introing all our guests today. But Mark, what are you working on now? Um, I'm producing a documentary about the uh, the iconic screenwriter uh, Ben Hecht, um, and completing two teaching books. Uh, once we completed Quentin's movie, we dove back into uh, Petrushka, my partner and I, uh, in uh, teaching workshops internationally. Last year, we taught in Amsterdam, Shanghai, Beijing, and Helsinki. Uh, this year, we started in Oslo, uh, across five cities in the UK, Ireland, and um, probably going back to Helsinki and uh, uh, the UK in the early part, in this early spring this coming year. So I'm prepping for most of that. Wow. Well, Mark, you've clearly been busy. Glad you could take time to join us today. My next guest today is also returning Mike Morales, also known as Money Mike, or on this film, Mike the fucking grip. Mike, welcome back. <laughs> hey, what's up, Skid? Thank you for having me, brother. <laughs> now, Mike, you joined us for the Jericho episode last season, and I recall that you were pretty busy at the time. What are you working on now? Oh, man. Uh, I'm what you call a day player now. After the Tarantino film last year, I just I go from TV show to commercial to TV show to feature to, you know, just bouncing around. And it's, it's a great way to do it when you're a guy like me. I mean, I'm a grip, and we're just guys that get beat up day in and day out so I go from different job to different job and it, it's honestly it, it kind of pays more and I'm not anywhere long enough to be upset or get mad or hate life so I'm what you call a day player well you know we are I mean? glad that you did uh, more than just day playing on uh, yeah. on Once Upon a Time Hollywood because we're going to dive deeper into that but before we do that let me introduce our fourth chair Bill Hardy Bill you worked with me on The Majestic among other things you didn't work on this film but you've seen it and today you're going to help me co-host Bill. Welcome. That's right. Hey, Skid. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. I, uh, yeah, I've been uh, working as an AD for the last 20 years in the film business. And uh, in addition to just my basic film historian knowledge, I've been a massive Quentin Tarantino fan since way back in the Reservoir Dog days. I was one of those guys with the the sticker on my back window of my K car driving around thinking I was the shit. Uh, all right. Well, okay. one more note, though, before we start. Uh, Yvonne Depatikupka was also planning to join us today. She was a hairstylist on the film. She additionally joined us for the Majestic podcast last season, and she's a good friend. But tragically, the day before we were scheduled to record, she broke her hand 
We're sorry she's not available today, but she's in our thoughts. And most importantly, we're wishing her a speedy recovery. Now, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and there will be spoilers. So there's a lot going on in this film, but I want to go down on a limb and say the most important element for all of this come together is the recreation of Hollywood in 1969. What do you guys think about that? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll jump in and just say it was absolutely a, a character in the film amongst the, we had over a hundred speaking parts, but, but the environment was, you know, uh, and this, this is not an uncommon thematic kind of device for, for Quentin, you know, and, and Hateful Eight, it was the wind and the, and the storm was, was an was a environmental character. And this time it was Hollywood 69 and, and that whole universal transition from the old, the old school to what was happening in that, in that period as far as the filmmaking world was concerned. Well, let's break down some of the logistical challenges of that. So let's start with where did you do the actual filming? In Hollywood. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, did you guys do a lot of... The, the title is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's where we did the movie. Sorry. Well, now, did you do most of the shooting on lots where you could control 100% no. of the environment or did you go out no. in the town and shoot actual locations? No, we shot the back lot at Universal to start for the episodic Western material called Lancer, Lancer. And we shot at Melody Ranch, and we also shot at a remake of the Spawn Ranch, which was an actual place uh, back at the time. But um, primarily, we were shooting in principal locations in Los Angeles. We shut down Hollywood Boulevard several times. We shot on Burbank Boulevard. We, uh, we owned Musso and Franks for days, interiors with Al Pacino, Leo, and and, and Brad. It was about Hollywood and Quentin and uh, created that environment in many ways for his actors. And, and, and Hollywood, Hollywood accommodated because it was really a love poem to movie making in that time in movie making. When we were shooting on Hollywood Boulevard, I took a look at the, all the people that were there and guys dressed like superheroes and they were all screaming and yelling. And I thought, holy cow, I'm one of those people. I just happened to be on the other side of the police fencing, but I am a nut and make no mistake. And I say this modestly, the darling of that movie was your boy. Okay. <laughs> Every single day, Tarantino and I would go at it about movies. Cause I told him I was the, I, you know what I did, Mark? I don't know if you had your ears on when we were shooting in the, uh, the saloon, it was day eight and Tarantino said something to me cause I always wore cool t-shirts and that's how I pulled him in. And uh, he had said something to me, and then after we got to talking, I said, I hear you're the second biggest fan of movies on this set. And he says, oh, challenge accepted. So every day, it was, it was the Mike and Tarantino show, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, it, it was just, I mean, we'll get into this, I'm sure, later, but it was the greatest experience of my career, the greatest. And, uh, yeah, we shot on Hollywood Boulevard. We shut down the 90, what freeway was it? The, the 90 freeway between the 405 and um, Lincoln Boulevard. We shut it down uh, so that Brad could drive. We shot in the parking lots. We shot all over. We, but yeah, we, we, it was on location. Um, and there it is. Now to dive a little deeper on locations before we get into the stories of working with Tarantino in more detail, to what degree could you guys depend on CGI coming in and cleaning things up? Removing never, the modern world or changing never, the look of things? Never, never, not ever, ever. It was. It was... <laughs> No, it was, you know, it was film. It was designed. We came, we did blockings. We actually adhered to the blockings. We, it was very, you know, very grammatically traditional in approach. 
Um, CGI was a forbidden, there's not even time click slates on Quintet. This, this is not, he doesn't do ADR, he doesn't do CGI, he makes it happen in front of the camera, and that's what's going to be in the movie. If it didn't happen in front of the camera, we're going to keep doing it until it does. And that's, that's, that's the environment you're operating in. And ultimately, it creates a really kind of lovely discipline. The actors love it. Quint's, there's no, there's no video assist. You know, he's not sitting in a tent watching his actors on TV. He's sitting at the dolly with the actors in the room all the time, every day, trusting his director of photography and all his other com contributors, creative contributors, uh, members of his orchestra to, to, to bring it, you know, to bring it, bring it every day. But CGI, you know, was, you, know <laughs> you know, there was another film crazy that came on the set. It's a surround of film crazy. I want to comment on Mike, you know, yours truly included. Um, a, a fellow named Steven Spielberg came one day and hung out with us. <laughs> he had some passion about film to, to dress, you know, back and forth. So, you know. And we were shooting in the, uh, the backlight Universal and uh, I'm on top of one of the buildings and I'm tying up some rope and I see Tarantino screaming at Spielberg that his jaws ride was messing up his film. Obviously, he was screaming out of love, and I'm sure they know each other. But I, 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 I imagine, myself, I, I imagine the shark pulling up to the uh, to the tour. No, Spielberg no. stepping off of the head <laughs> into this, yeah. and then Tarantino, Stephen. No, no, uh, it wasn't quite that elaborate. But uh, Stephen, as you know, you know he he owns Universal Studios, so he just shows up, and and I'm looking at this, and you think to yourself, who else can yell at Spielberg? like this <laughs> other than tarantino you know what i mean and and he says you're right it's messing i had to build a whole wall you fool and and, and steven's just taking it and he says okay hey, i'm just gonna go talk to leo and i thought to myself what did i just witness where am i and for me i think that was day dare i say day two and i i just blown away and i knew okay this is gonna be bananas i'm looking at tarantino screaming at spielberg i just gazed into brad pitt's eyes okay <laughs> here we go man <laughs> And, and, it, and this, the movie never disappointed. So let's take that as a segue. What is it like working with Tarantino? Um, it really depends on what you mean. Uh, for me, it's kind of a bent perspective as uh, it's, it's almost 25 years at this point that we've, we've been together on movie sets. What was, uh, what was your first movie with him, Mark? We, we met in Acuna, Mexico on a film called Desperado, directed by Robert Rodriguez. And Quentin came down to Cameo and was down there for three days. And we met there. Um, and, and then very soon after, uh, the next film that Robert directed was called Dusk Till Dawn, and Quentin wrote it, produced it, and acted in it. And in that film, we bonded. We, we really kind of got into a deep conversation. In fact, there's a documentary on the DVD uh, still there called Full Tilt Boogie, which, Excellent uh, documentary. which engages in a lot of you know, the, the, the issues of the moment, but also reveals all of us at an earlier stage in our careers and our lives. And, and I'm in it and Quinn's in it. And it's, 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 um, it's kind of a lovely remembrance, really, in many ways. But that's when we connected. And we, we've done everything he's done ever since, except two episodes of, uh, I think, was it NCI or CSI? Whatever. <laughs> he did two episodes of a series um, which had, had its own staff crew. But all the films we've done together since then been an enormous privilege for me and a very rewarding creatively and, and personally. Well, Mark, then tell me more in more detail what it was like working with him on this film with that sort of history. How have things changed? What did he bring to this? Like I mentioned in the Rotten Tomatoes summary, considered a mature filmmaker's vision. 
I agree with that assessment in, in, in spades. It, it, it's really in many ways his most uh, loving and generous and, heart, and heartfelt film. In, in a lot of, it, it's about acceptance and gratitude and love and um, you know the two principal characters. In some way, it harkens back to Jackie Brown because what you have are essentially fringe characters that are at the center of the story um, and the evolution of their relationship as, as events unfold. Um, revealing, you know, uh, their true natures. They're three-dimensional, you know. Each of them has their, you know, uh, different aspects uh, at different points in time, but their relationship is really this great sort of, you know, connecting tissue. It's a continuity. And like I say, gratitude and acceptance ultimately uh, uh, overcomes territory and ego in the film. And that's a real, real mature thematic thing to, to imbue in a film that, you know, um, I mean, it's filled with humor. It's got all of Quentin's, you know, hallmark signature components, yet it stands alone as a very special kind of um, moment. It's his day for night. It's his love poem to making movies. And it's his realization of the, you know, the depth of, of fallibility uh, uh, in people, but that, that does not, you know, override their, their innate, you know, goodness as, as humans. So I, I love all of that about this film. You asked what it was like working for Tarantino film. Mark's answer was fantastic. I'm going to give you the, the view from a fan's perspective. As I said, I'm one of those guys on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, real quick, I grew up a young kid in Harlem, New York during the crack era. Uh, single mother. So what she did is to keep me out of trouble and to keep me from getting hurt, she just got me cable. So I never left my room. I just watched TV all day long. And that's, uh, I've seen every movie ever made or so I thought until I ran into Quentin. So <laughs> it really was like being a fanboy because I've loved Quentin's movies since um, I saw true romance. And uh, he and I would have great conversations about that. But what it was like working on a Tarantino film as a fan of movies and Bill, I can see, you know, the way you're smiling, listening to Mark, I, I could see you, you truly are a fan. It was everything you thought it would be. The guy is the manic character you see. He is a living encyclopedia of movies, so he was a joy to talk to. He's sincere in his love. Now, watch this. This is what I, I found. I've worked on movies with, you know, um, how, how does one say this? Like, uh, I've, done, I've done Ridley Scott stuff, David Lynch, uh, uh, Chris Nolan, Spielberg. And those were big marquee directors doing big movies, Hollywood movies. This is the first time I'd ever seen a big Hollywood director doing his movie, the way he wanted to do it. And, and his mantra, Mark, you can agree, when I heard this, I just flipped out. He says, we're not making a budget, we're making a movie. So it wouldn't matter if it took us 40,000 hours to light one scene, it, do it, and then we'll shoot it. Um, <laughs> but it, it, was, it, was, it was everything you thought it was, man. It, it was... Uh, just, just to watch him do his thing. Now, now, let me say this, and I, and I have told this story for a year, and I am telling you guys now, I am not taking credit for this, but I am saying that, well, this is what happened. The Bruce Lee scene, remember that? Bill, you're smiling? Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. We all, yeah, I remember that. The right. Bruce Lee scene's important. Right. When we were shooting that, I'm watching this, and I'm just making these faces like, ah. And he says, Mike, Mike, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, ah, nothing, nothing. He says, no, no, come on, tell me, tell me, tell me. I said, listen, I'm not going to argue with Quentin Tarantino. Dude, just forget it. I just, I'm enjoying the show. He's Mike, I want to hear it. What do you got to say? And I said, look, man, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just being as respectful as I can. But what you have happening here, and you said there were spoilers, right, Skid? We can talk spoilers? Yeah, we talk spoilers on this. Absolutely. Go okay. for it. Um, you know, 
Brad Pitt's character kicks the shit out of uh, out of Bruce Lee. And I'm saying, listen, man, there's not a man alive that could ever do that. But again, we appreciate how you turned Hitler into Swiss cheese. You know, we, <laughs> we, we, we like that you alter history for you, but I'm just saying. And he's okay, whatever. And we continue to, and then I remember, and, and also I think that the stunt coordinator told him that. So I remember the next day he came in, we were shooting down in a, what was the town? I can't remember, Downey or something like that. At this Nor, big school. Nor, uh, Nor, Norwood. Nor, uh, Nor, Norwood. Right. Yeah. And he says, hey guys, hey, listen, I, I rewrote the script and my sleeper came in overnight and, and this is what we're going to do. And then what we saw is what, what, what he shot. Now I'm, again, I'm saying I'm not taking credit for that. I'm just <laughs> saying that it bothered me so much. And in the way they did it, I thought it worked out well. Um, I like. I have a question for you, man. Yes, sir. I got a question for you. Did Did you get five dollars that day? Nothing. I got nothing. But But you know what? That's all right. Why would five dollars? What would happen? Well, there's 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 been a tradition with Quentin over over the years where if yeah. you know anybody comes to him with an idea that's contributed and he uses the idea, it's a very high bar. It's not easy to cross over that bar, and he's become more, more resistant over time. You get five dollars. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of wondering if you got if you got included in that because it's it's also a, an expression of his comfort in his own skin and and the value right. he gives to everybody being there as a contributor. He wants everyone on that set crew, third electrician through exec producer. I've read every page of that script and know what we're doing before we go. Yeah. And so that they're all included in, in the score, in the orchestra, you know, that they know what uh, music we're playing. So, well, so uh, that's sort of a little bit of a wiggle, I think. But I think you actually did contribute that. That's a, that's a good thing. No. I, remember now, I didn't contribute. I didn't say, hey, he should do this. I guess he saw my angst. And again, I'm not speaking for Quentin Tarantino because you can't tell what goes on in his brain. But what I can say is the end result was what we were shooting is not what happened. And then the next day, that's when he came in and Zoe was the, the wife and Kurt Russell. And she says, what'd you do to my card? And he says, yeah, we re I'm going to redo the whole thing. And I remember we did that in a day. So I didn't say, hey, Quentin, we should do this. It's because I probably would have the five though. That's a different issue than bringing an idea into, into, into fruition by a conversation. It doesn't mean that, you know, you didn't contribute either. It means that you brought, you brought a thought and, and engaged and collided with the existing territory and something else synthesized out of that. So, you, yeah. you know, that's contribution, brother. Yeah, you know, you like should, I, you, I, Mike, I, if I can put in there, I think Quentin Tarantino probably owes you at least 50 cents. Like, I think cents. next time you see him, you get a couple of bits, I think, you know, is probably you know, at least what you deserve if you're not getting the whole five dollars. So, and, and I'll we say try this. not to judge. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the relationship, dare I call it, uh, that he and I shared for that time. I'm telling you, if I didn't see this guy for seventy years, and he saw me walking down the street, he would say, "Mike the Grip." He, he, That's right, he's, without a doubt. And 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 every Friday night we would ha and shake each other's hands and. And, and, and it, it was, I was so happy to come to work each day, you know, and, and as a grip who gets beat up and, you know, this is our job to take it hard. I couldn't wait to go to work. I could not every single day. I was like, what's going to happen today? So Bill, I know as a, as a, what is clearly you as a super fan, um, to have witnessed that it, it would have just made your day. Uh, yeah, I, I did where I was. Yeah. I, I, you know, side note, I had to turn down a job on Kill Bill because it was, uh, they weren't offering the PAs enough money. Another, that's where I, I will always represent the PAs, even as an AD here on this right show. On. 
but uh but but and that broke my heart so i carry that with me (laughs) working in the film industry yeah you know i got to work on aviator i saw i i saw the same magic things happen and i still wish that i had gotten to see uh it on a tarantino movie so you do it's you really do you truly do, and, I, and I'm telling you, you do feel and, bad. And you, you and there. you carry that, and you carry that badge of honor because that is oh, yeah. the second most talked about topic of the, with this movie after the ending is definitely the Bruce Lee fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> so you, and, you know what I mean? It's like you know, it it's noteworthy. People have definitely been thinking about it if he hadn't of before. Well, guys, that uh, brings up a general question I want to ask. So, Mark, you might be in a position to know this: is the script then locked from the beginning? It sounds like there's some moving around, but what's the balance between what's written or rewritten or improvised on set? Uh, Let me respond with an aggregate answer over over time in multiple projects. He's he's one of the most prepared directors I've had the privilege to work with in that he he really conceptualizes the movie from the get-go by focusing intensely on on character, arc, storyline, uh, you know, thematic stuff. We've done shows, uh, Django and Chain's a good example. We scouted the, the Louisiana locations maybe six, seven weeks in advance of principal photography. When we came back to principal photography, you know, 85, 90% of the discussed potential blocking from that tech scout actually emerged on the day. Now that's not Hitchcockian, like he's got a, a, a you know, a storyboard that's locked, you know, we shoot this frame of the storyboard and this, it, it, I mean, there's still plenty of discovery that takes place on the day once all of the principal elements and actors are physically in the space and the shot and the scene's blocked. And now we have a real roadmap what we're going to do. But he comes with a conceptual, uh, 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 established conceptual idea of what we're going to do, how it's going to play. You know, the scene is is in his mind in 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 advance of arriving with the openness to discover new things as, as we, the work unfolds. So, so uh, for me, the script is really, he devotes enormous amount, he's a writer who directs more than a director who writes, although it's both. I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Um, and he's very, uh, very specific about those words. You know, they, they you know, does and ands and commas are as important as, you know, uh, uh, you know, large, large, multisyllabic, you know, words. They're, they're all about beats and it's music, you know, and, and without any other way to describe it. It's so very important, but not, not set in stone to such an, a, a, a level where we're hamstrung when something better comes up in front of us. Now, what about um, the twist in this story? So there's a very deliberate twisting of history, much like in Glorious Bastards before. In both cases, the twist was a surprise to me. Is that known to everybody on set? In other words, is the script public or are there parts kept, kept secret when you guys are doing the film? This was the most unusual component of pre-production on this film as compared to all the other projects that we, we've done together. All of those other projects, the scripts were to the core group of, you know, keys and creative contributors was, you know, distributed once he felt he had a locked, you know, a locked script. And that would happen months before and everybody was on. on. This one was really different in that he felt very strongly um, about protecting the privacy of the content. Um, didn't want it out there because, and so everyone who was involved did a read in house, unlike the past. 
under supervision in a locked room uh, without getting physical scripts until later in the game once we began to go underway. And nobody had the end. Not Bob Richardson, not, you know, nobody had the complete final act of the movie um, uh, revealed by Quentin. He kept that under wraps. I think two people or three maybe, you know, maybe Shannon and David, had, you know, the producer. But it was verboten. And uh, it only became revealed as we became, uh, it started to chronologically come up upon it in the schedule. Um, so that was a real unique thing. It was about not spoiling and letting the audience, and he, he expressed that to the press when the film was first opening and, and premiering. Please don't reveal this movie and especially don't reveal the end. It's really important to the audience to not have that spoiled by, by inadvertent. And the press basically respected that for the most part. Uh, so it was late in production when you shot the ending of the movie, Mark? How long was the shooting schedule? Let's see, we started in June, right? Six months, something like that. Six and a half months, yeah. Wow. The longest one so far has been Kill Bill. That was almost 10 months in the four countries, but... but two was, that's two movies, though, too. <laughs> no, it became two movies. It was shot as one movie. It became no, I mean, if, if, if that was four hour, if that was a four and a half hour movie, I would still say that was two movies. I would watch <laughs> the theater. The first the cut of this movie was movie. four and a half hours. The first cut of this movie was four and a half hours. You know, uh, the first assemblage cut was was at that length without redundancy. So, you know, uh, he does the movie for its organic, normal, you know, appropriate length rather than trying to fit the movie into a specific length. And, and, and it finds its own gravity ultimately so if his script is locked are there no uh no rainbow script are you reporting no, all the white pages we do not we do not get no there's no like you know you know there might be a rewrite of a particular scene if if he's rethought it after the fact once we've done it as as mike described you know he he had a better a stronger idea emerged in the process from whatever source that triggered that 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 change um but that's unusual it does happen, and, and, and it goes to the point I'm making that it's, he's, he's, he's not someone who is set in concrete, as I experience it anyway, about uh, something if a better idea emerges. It's all about the making the movie better. It's serving the project. It's, it's maintaining, maintaining connection with the audience in a way that, that you know, he's absolutely committed to entertaining in, inside the realm of, of the storytelling. So it's really a special circumstance. It's, it's rare. Super Do you guys think that the cast knows ahead of time that there's going to be this twist? In other words, does Margot know that Sharon Tate is going to live? Listeners, we warned you there was going to be spoilers, but uh, does she know that as an aspect of the character or does it not matter for her for the character? I mean, I guess uh, we're not necessarily in their heads, but I'm curious what you guys saw on set or if they had more knowledge maybe than crew did. Okay, from what I saw, I would say, okay, watching the interaction between him and someone like, say, Brad Pitt, they're clearly friends and have been so for probably almost 30 years. So I would think maybe he would have told someone like Brad. Leo, perhaps. Uh, Margot, maybe not. And, uh, which is not to say that she and him, because they have or don't have a certain relationship, would or wouldn't know. But when you, when you look at how they interact, the way Quinn would interact with Brad and Leo, and I, and I saw that, you could see there's a relationship there. You know, I didn't have a personal relationship with him, but from what I gather just from interacting with him, he loves what he does so much. And I think that he would trust that anybody around him would or would not give away secrets. So maybe. Um, 
I, I can't see that he would have let it spill out to a bunch of people. And again, this is just coming from a super fan who observed. I do not know specifically. I would watch him tell Brad Pitt stories and Brad would be shocked. Oh man, you re you rewrote the dialogue to Crimson Tide? Wow, you did that <laughs> in a week? What? You know, things like that. I don't know. I, I would say maybe, I'd have to think that maybe one of them knew because it, it, I really didn't see that coming. Even when we were filming it, I said, what is this? And then when I saw it on screen, I said, oh, wow. I didn't see that coming at all. There's a lot of pre-production rehearsal amongst the actors. There's a big read-through at the front end. I know Leo and, and Al Pacino worked at length together privately on, on their character evolution. There's, there's a bunch of components. Quentin invites them to do whatever is needed to get them in gear for their characters so that on the day when we're there, they're not starting from zero. They're, they're already invested in, in a lot of the construction of the characters and their nature. So, so that's, a, that's a, also a signature path and it's pretty old school and, it, and it's very effective, especially with journeyman act. I mean, we have people on this that, you know, that are just, you know, they're, they're iconic as actors, but they came there and they were all equals. There was no ego play, there was no territory, there was no, you know, um, that's un unaccepted on his sets, in fact. And so um, they just loved being there for the pure presence of being there. And I, I, I think he was fairly open and direct with all the key components necessary for them to construct their characters. That was my experience with, with this situation. I, I agree. And I got to tell you, um, here's something for someone like Bill and all the Bills listening. Tarantino, since he still uses film, he would, he would share um, dailies. So every Friday, you could go and watch the dailies with him Absolutely. at his spot in Hollywood. And you look to your left, and Leo DiCaprio is just sitting there hanging out, drinking a beer, and, and <laughs> like, where am I? This is crazy. Um, Listen, yeah. on Hateful Eight, yeah. which we shot in 70 millimeter at 11,000 feet in the dead of winter, 20 below most days to start, every night or every other night, in Telluride, in the converted Mason's Hall, which is where the Telluride Film Festival happens, we're watching film work print in 70 millimeter dailies in the screening room with all the keys and anybody who was, everybody who's on that set is welcome to come to those dailies. And it's a key element in filmmaking to evaluate your work on the daily. It's not just an entertainment moment. It's how, how are the lenses operating? What's, you know, what's the lab doing with the print? How, how are the, how's the makeup working? You know, how, how are the actors, you know, coming across in, in their character development. It, it dailies is sort of this, you know, essential tool that has actually been dissolving uh, away in its, you know, initial characterization of a collective evaluation of the work in, together. People now see it on, a, on an iPad or on a laptop yeah. or on a screen alone without having that context of the other people who have worked together to make the shots happen every day. Quentin doesn't go for that. Dailies is a part of the part of the process of making the movie. So the representation of the camera department, let's, as you were starting to allude there in the 70 millimeter and shooting film, everything else, we've been talking about Quentin. We have not been talking about Bob Richardson here. And pretty much all the movies that we've touched on, this one too, can we talk a little bit about uh, K-Bob? Were you guys listening to... Uh, Bob, uh, talk, yeah, talking on the radio there. Bob has this thing called the Bobcom, where it's this headset, which is apparently one way 
and he speaks to the the all the department heads, the the, the gaffer, the key grip, uh, you know, uh, props that I know, and they can't speak back. So when he says, "You're on oh, two. you're okay, yeah. So as well, Mark as well, and when he and ads speak, and the ads, I witnessed right. it on Aviator as well. Why? <laughs> how I know? What I, what I saw was that. You can't speak back. So when he says, hey, I need this, you can't say, hey, what was that, Bob? You better do it. You better do it right because this is Bob Richardson and this is it. And I tell you, um, that man is serious business. His resume is why we all love movies. And he is a man that uh, commands the set the way he does. Whatever you think you think, that's it, Bill. He Well, yeah, he's serious business. Yeah, it was watching him float above in the giraffe crane. Yeah. As, and, then, oh. and then you just hear people walking around going, yeah, Bob, got it, Bob. And you're like, are they insane? Like, no, this is how art works. Why don't you go back and make your little television show? Yeah, I, I was shocked <laughs> to see him operating as well. Now, here's something, again, as a fan, um, if you look at his movies like Casino uh, or any of his movies, they have that big, bright light sometimes that, that comes from above. You'll see it on De Niro and in, in, in what happened was as a grip, what I would do is I would put black wrap around the light, which would focus. And I remember being on a ladder and I'm wrapping this par can and I looked down and I looked at the gaffer, Ian Kincaid, and I just looked and I just started to tremble. I said, is this the Bob light? Is, is this what I see in every one of his films? You see, <laughs> I said, I yeah, yeah, yeah. You can where where they say they had to on JFK. They had to give the fire retardant yes, hairspray because yes. the light was hit my head so hard. And and I wrapped one of those lights. I made <laughs> one of those lights happen. And I just had to again every single day. It was a moment of oh my god, where am I? I cannot believe this. Quentin once told me. He says, Mike, I don't know how you guys do what you do. I don't know how a light does this or a camera works this way. He says, but I know the background of each and every one of my characters. He says, I know what the wolf had for breakfast. I know <laughs> where, you know, Jules went to school. And then and, and, and I would ask him these things and then he would share something with me and I'd go home and watch the movie and now I'd have a, a different kind of reverence. You know, when I, when I found out the relationship between Jimmy and Jules and Pulp Fiction, you know, we were all just blown away. So now here I am lighting a light that I've seen before in one of his other movies when the, the bride busts through the door or something. I lit, I did that. Bill, it was an absolute um, delight as a super fanatic to be on that set. And I had to control myself because I couldn't <laughs> let him know how insane I truly was. You know, sometimes he and I would talk movies of his and I'd quote his movies with him. And you talk about the script earlier, Mark, about how he's so in tune. This man knows every word to his scripts. I've even seen him mouthing the words while the actors are saying it. it, it, it just he, He's a fan of his own stuff. <laughs> and then you got other fans, and it was the greatest. You know, Mark, at some point, we got to talk about the cell phone issue. Let me say this as a worker bee. So Quentin is famous for hating cell phones. And I got to tell you, I, I really am right there with him. He has this thing where he has a production assistant sit at a table called Checkpoint Charlie. And his only job is to make sure that he gets that cell phone out of your pocket. You are not allowed. Steven Spielberg had to check his phone. That's how serious it was. <laughs> Wait a second. You didn't give the punchline. When Steven left the set, he had his assistant take pictures of Checkpoint yep. Charlie. I want this on my set from now on. Sure it is. Yeah. So, so now, it truly is. So now when you work on a Spielberg set, you better not have your phone out. And I got to say, for those months that I, I, we couldn't have our phones on our, you couldn't even have them in your pocket. You couldn't have them on your person. 
If it was seen in your hand, you would be on a firing squad. It'd kill your family <laughs> and set you on fire. There are no phones. And I got to tell you, the work environment was so much more amazing because people were paying attention. People were, we were all conversing together. We, it was one big unit. They were wearing wristwatches. <laughs> To tell what time it was. That's true. I almost, I almost bought a watch so I could know what time it was. You know what I mean? Because you're always looking at your phone. I've seen medics. I saw a medic get fired off a job once because the producer said, no phones. And he checked his phone. He says, go get out. We got another medic. Leave. So there are those guys that are serious about the no phone thing. And now when I go to a set and I, I'm, I'm so, um, you know, my senses are acute to it. So looking at people on the phone, I'm kind of like incensed by it. You know, put your phone away. You know, and, and, and I got to tell you, it was the greatest experience of my career. I know I've said that, but for everyone out there that's listening, if you are a Tarantino fan, if you are a fan of movie making, this is what you wish you could experience. I'd even do it for free for a day or so because just to experience it. <laughs> All right, to, don't commit. Don't, Mike, Mike, hold, on, hold off for a better deal than that. But before, so <laughs> tell me, guys, did cast have to turn their phones in as well at the table? Like, was it a call? Absolutely. Every no phones. Everyone. It doesn't matter if Everybody. you're the exec producer, head of the studio, no or a third electrician. If your phone's there, you're off the set or fired or both. In That's fact, no warning. If somebody had it. He would not. He, he. I've seen him shut down a set in Germany. We were on on Inglorious. Some phone went off. He shut down the set. He said, "We're going home until this gets wow. solved." And, I, and it gets explained. We went home. As a grip, I had to stand on what you call a frame. For those that don't know, it's a twelve foot by twelve foot, and it it bounces light. And uh, Timothy Oliphant is standing there and I'll never forget. So this for me was about day two or three and a phone went off, but it was someone's phone that worked at universal and they were about 200 feet away. But I remember the phone went off and I, and I'm standing five feet from Quentin and he, he lost his brain. He, he went so berserk and he says, whose phone is that? And if I can't find out who it is, I'm leaving. And the, the head of the universal is going to call me and tell me why I can't fire them. And then Timothy Oliphant says, wow, okay, that, that's how you feel. So cut to, we were shooting at Musso and Frank's. And I see Al Pacino, just, you know, he's on his phone. He's sitting in his director chair uh, off in the corner. And I jokingly went up to him and I said, sir, uh, you might want to put your phone away. We wouldn't want you to get fired. And Al Pacino looks at me like, uh, I'm not going anywhere, buddy. But it was just that moment I got to share with Michael Corleone. You know what I'm saying? I said, please, sir, put, put your phone away. And, uh, and that was that. But yes, no one, no phones. Yes, yes, yes. No phones. Uh, I, I, got, I got this incredible good fortune of spending some serious time with Al Pacino. You know, I'm from New York also, Mike. I don't know if you know that. Born in Manhattan, born and bred there, grew up there. Um, and uh, a lot of history there for another conversation another time. But um, we sat waiting to do his scene in, in uh, Musso's for 40, 45 minutes, talking about the old days in New York. Um, he's, you know, 10, 10, 15 years older than me, but his relationship with Marty Sheen and how they, they really helped each other survive and get there, get out of being, you know, poor, starving actors into, into, into the realm. And he was very connected with that and humble and, and engaged and not, you know, there was, there was almost no ego there. I, he, he didn't, the day one, I think he wasn't really aware of the universe he was stepping into on a Quentin film, but by day two, he was like, he was home. He was, oh my God, I haven't seen this kind of thing on a movie. You know, he was home. This was so many ways, you know, the process, uh, you know, the Italian thing was there. <laughs> just, just so many pieces of it were, were uh, organically 
you know, right. And, and so, and, and everyone had that feeling throughout that, you know, this is another hallmark thing for Quentin is he creating this environment for the actors where they're, their thirst and hunger to be in the right place when they do what they do is, is, is deeply satisfied on a daily basis when they're on one of his sets. It's, it's, it's kind of a great thing to see. Tell me more about working with this cast because we mentioned uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt in the lead. We've mentioned a few other folks in supporting roles, but there are lots of folks coming in, some for very short bits, some people for major actors and smaller parts, but over the course of the film, what was it like working with this cast? Bruce Dern, Damian Lewis, uh, Lena Dunham, you know, just on and on and on and on and on. Uh, just, just um, again, that sense of being home for them as actors. It, it, you're, with, you're in an orchestra, you know, and or if you want to say like a, a, an old rock band that's been on the road for, you know, the Rolling Stones or whatever, you know. Ian Kincaid, the gaffer and I are friends for over 40 years. And there's a lot of relationships like that. You talk about Bob, Bob Richardson in this environment is not someone who is egocentric. He's serving the project completely and is also home. Uh, there's a, uh, there's an innate non un, unspoken language going on shot by shot of uh, mutuality and understanding that, that is like musicians who play, they may not speak articulately, but they're musically, very precise and and this is that kind of situation so the cast feeds on that and the the quality and level of 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 excellence in this cast immediately gets that and and ties in and it amplifies their capacity to do their best is really the way to answer what it was like to work with a cast like this they're they're in the most nurturing uh, environment possible for actors to be in and so what comes out is this ethereal thing you know look look at margo if you went on the page it's a fairly non-dialogue driven ethereal kind of character it's, it's almost a presence in in the movie uh more dominantly than than you know uh, interactive with all the other characters but she is someone at her level and who took that and opened that up and, and took it as an opportunity to really sort of fill the air with this ethereal character that in some ways uh, is, is the perfect counterpoint to the Leo uh, Brad relationship, you know, and it, it, it's also that Quentin hopefulness there the, again, that optimism in this movie, which is so unusual, you know, this gratitude and appreciation thing, but this, there's an optimism in this film that I think is, is, is underappreciated actually. It's, it's just a, you know, a sense of how things can be. You know, it's a fairy tale, once upon a time in Hollywood, but it's also a commentary on, on the state of the world. And, and I think, I think he's, he's maturing in deep ways about what he can be saying with his movies. That was, okay. just, that was just heavy, Mark. Yeah, we know we got you. <laughs> 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 okay. right. I'm not a clear room. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm I in keep, love with the movie. I got to tell you, I'm in love with the movie. I am. And with the experience of this movie, uh, uh, you know, and I'm an old dog, you know, a Norwell, but I, I will tell you that it's rare that you get to be in a continual expression of your full potential with others in their full potential on a daily basis in the thing you love to do in your life. This just doesn't happen that often in movies. It's more frequent in music, except nobody makes a living in music. <laughs> If I may come in, uh, this is Mike now, uh, with regards to what was it like working with a cast like this? Again, 
I have to always harken back to the fact that I was a fan who got to play on a Tarantino movie. And now Mark says he's been friends with people like Ian and all these guys for a thousand years. Here I am, just some kid who wound up on it. And I've only got about two decades in the business. I've seen it all, and it's all usually the same. It's rudimentary. It's a beat down. You come in, you work for 50 billion hours. You go home, you get 10 minutes of sleep, you come back. But this one, again, I said, okay, so I'm a fan. How do I get to talk to Brad and Leo? And Because there's an etiquette that you do know and you must understand. You don't just go up to these guys. So what I did, and this is how I drew Quentin in. I wore cool T-shirts every day. Cool, badass, uh, 70s, 80s references, whatever. And that's how Quentin started talking to me. And then one day I'm wearing a Clash of the Titans T-shirt. And Leo says, man, look at that. And then Brad comes. And, so, and then I would say, oh, hey, listen, by the way. And, and, it, and they, would need, they would see that I was a nut and probably walk away. But when, when <laughs> I would see Pacino and Brad and Leo and Margot, and then I'm saying, okay, well, that's Bruce Willis's daughter. And, and, and all these people that would and, – and, and Luke Perry, I'm like, oh, my God. And Luke Perry starts coming up and talking to me. and like, where am I? And, and, and they were all just – put it this way. You're dealing with some A-list people, and none of them ever acted like that. Not once that I saw. You did what I'm saying? They, they didn't do the whole Hollywood thing where the floral arrangement in my trailer isn't good enough. Someone take care of it. They were just there hanging out next to the guy who did the thing with the stuff. And, oh, I remember this one time we were shooting with Bruce Dern. And Bruce Dern, you know, this is Hollywood ancient royalty, man. He was laying down playing George Spawn, you know. He says to Quentin, hey, Quentin, what was that movie where I did the thing and the stuff and the deal? Oh, yeah, that was 1959. And, and Quentin just knew what he was talking about. And to witness that, you see, you're really dealing with an ingenue, man. I mean, I, I dare say Quentin is on the spectrum. You know, because he's just that much. That's all he knows is movies and music. And to watch it come together and you say, man, is this how they did Pulp Fiction? Is this how they did Django? Is this how they did Kill Bill? You wonder, again, as a fan. Now, Mark, you were there. You would know. But for guys like me and Bill, you know, this is something I'll never forget, Bill. And I, and I do really feel for you that you weren't able to do Kill Bill. <laughs> because if you're a fan, this is where you want to be. Hey, he got I to do the podcast, okay? He get, he's there getting his <laughs> fix today, all right? He's getting his fix. Let, let me reinforce, Mike. Let me reinforce something Mike said about Quinn's encyclopedic uh, talents. This is a classic Quentin anecdote. On Kill Bill, this is before you had Spotify and, and air, you know, pulling music out of the air on, on any device in your pocket. This is like in the early, this is 2002, 2003. So it's almost, it's almost you know, 15, 18, 20 years ago. And so that didn't exist. And we're, we're doing the chapel where uh, Bill's going to come in and assassinate the wedding party and all that in advance. And we're, we're set up. Uh, after the shooting has happened and, and um, Uma is on the floor and we're, we're in this you know, profile of her being unconscious in, in coma on the floor in a pool of blood. And we're about five minutes away from shooting, from rolling. Things are in place. And Quentin comes over to me because I, I, I was always carrying you know, two, three, four terabytes of music all the time for lots of reasons. But, but he comes, do you, listen, do you have, I, 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 need to, I need to play Bang Bang. You know, you know the song Bang Bang? I, I said, yes, yeah, Sonny and Cher. He said, yeah, but I, 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 want, I, want, I want the different version. So I said, well, well I've got two. I've got the original Sonny and Cher and then Cher's disco re, you know, redo. And then, no, no, no. God, 
No, I want. I need the the Nancy Sinatra one. You know, the one from side B of her second album. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and, that sounds and, like and, him. And I'm like, Quentin, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah. all right, you know, I, you know, and so you know, I got PA scrambling to go get this by the end of the day, if possible. But we're shooting in five minutes. It's, it's all right. I'll, it's all right. I'll do it. I'll sing it to her. So we go to the shop. Wait, this is that's the setup. That's not the punchline. So wow. so we go to do the shot, and it's like it's like a complete profile at head level. It's like a you know uh, I think it's a, a neck up. It's a, it's a, it's a Sergio Leone on the side, um, and Quint and and it's Quentin. We're about to roll, and we roll, and he and it's Nancy Sinatra's cover of this is sort of a slow, quiet. If you remember it from the film, I don't know if you remember it. You know, he sings it to to Uma, next to the camera. And we're miking it, so, you know, we never not roll on, in, on any uh, shot, if you know. <laughs> and so Quentin Whisper sings this thing, three verses. Okay, end of the day, I get the, somebody's brought me, brought me the song, and I have it, and I'm listening to it. And I'm going, what the fuck? I listen to the song, I go back and listen to the take. I listen to the song, I go back and listen to the take. He's dead to nuts accurate on every word in every verse. Wow. He's at tempo and he's in pitch <laughs> to the song. Wow. So yeah. much so that that night I and my utility, we get together and we do a custom little remix of Quentin and Nancy Sinatra as a duet. <laughs> and I burn it out to a, to a CD to give it to him for his ride home because we're, we're up in the valley. Give him for a CD for his ride home that night from the set. Amazing, amazing. Uh, and there was yeah. almost no editing. It's it was scary. It was it was truly a, a haunting experience. To you know, musicians don't do that. I mean, this was a very and it, and and I've seen him do things like that, you know, again and again over the years. Well, let me ask you guys, Mark. You've got a ton of history working on Quentin's projects, Mike. You're approaching a lot of it as a fan. Objectively, though, separate from those points of views, is this a difficult set to work on? If I didn't have that connection or that sort of fan excitement, were the days long? Was it difficult to shoot? Was there a lot of yelling? Was it hard to be there for crew? Okay, I'll, I'll say this as the worker bee. Was it hard? Uh, just inherently as a grip, it's a tough job. It's a physical job. Um, you get beat up all the time. And let me say this. We got beat up every day. However, uh, there were about 10 of us. And these were some of the A-list of A-list grips. Like when you work on a low budget film, you, you know, you got those kinds of guys. But when you work on something like this, you're going to have the creme de la creme. So the hard beat down was tolerable. And also what I mentioned earlier about how, how there weren't separate departments. It was all one crew. The grips were helping the electricians and vice versa and camera and, and, and props and, and painters, we were all one crew. So was it hard physically? Perhaps, but we loved what we were doing and we're so into the project, you, you almost didn't care. Were there times where it got hairy? Sure, I saw Quentin get mad, I saw Bob get mad, but that's because you gotta kick ass sometimes to make things happen. But there was nothing that I wouldn't do again. There was no way I wouldn't take it the way, I, I wouldn't want it any different. But is it difficult? Yeah, you, you have to have your A game on a job like this. You know what I mean? You're not going to be on the marquee uh, players' jobs and not bring everything you can. Yeah, it's a given. You're bulletproof. You're there as a play, you know, a player of pl player among players. 
you're you're a seasoned hardcore triple a list pro and you're invited to the game and the and the reward is to play with other good players very so, true if you're not on your game, you should not be there. But the whole point is it raises your, your spirit to be most enjoyably at your maximum potential. That's the whole point. If you're in this, your life, you have to have a whole big chunk of you that loves making movies or you can't do it well. And this is, a, this is an environment where that is, that is fed and nurtured on a, on a shot by every shot's handmade. Every shot's a universe of, you know, a community of three to 300 artisans coming together trying to make this little, you know, few seconds seem real so that what happens at the end of the day is the audience has connection with these characters and this story and the journey they're on and the environment in which that journey takes place. And if that's not happening, then everything else falls apart. So these artisans who come to make that special handmade shot to fit into the group of shots that fit into the group of scenes that fit into the whole piece of cloth are all filmmakers. That's the highest compliment that you can be paid. You're not there as a grip or me as a sound mixer or as, you're there as a filmmaker to understand what it takes to make this story happen. So the audience suspends belief and believes in those characters. That's it. That's what Quentin creates around them. Well, diving a little deeper, were there any specific scenes that were particularly challenging, particularly surprising, particularly fun that uh, still stick in your memories? I love the hullabaloo scene where, where Leo had to sing and dance live on camera while we were, that was, that was taking a fish out of water and he performed beautifully. But you know, to me, that was a great deal of fun. For me, my gosh, to, to try and single out. Oh, 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 how can I forget? Yes. Uh, and I got a little PTSD from this, but yes, uh, Marcus, correct. It's very hard to single out, but it was the scene where Leo comes in and says, Hey, anybody order some fried sauerkraut? And we and we flamethrower the Nazis. I could not believe. First of all, we did that indoors. We shot at a little place, uh, a, a warehouse in a town called El Sereno, and he built this Nazi stronghold set. It was a three-walled set, and Leo actually shot that um, flamethrower. Now, the reason I got PTSD from it later, like I was driving home and I thought that weapon was used for that kind of application to burn suckers from twenty feet away. And the, the way those stuntmen did it and the smell of the fire, it, it was just so amazing. And I loved it. And it was so Tarantino. You know, anybody ordered some fried sauerkraut. And, you know, whenever you're looking at images of burning a Nazis, I mean, that just makes you feel good. <laughs> and it was amazing to see that and to say, I am a part of this. Are you kidding? So I think the flamethrowing Nazis, watching Brad just stand still, you see why that guy is a super mega star. And, oh, Whenever there was a scene where it was Leo and Brad in the Cadillac together, which, by the way, that was Mr. Blonde's Cadillac from Reservoir I was, Dogs. I was <laughs> trying to remember yes. earlier today. I was like, you know, there's got to, because the overarching theme yeah. in my yeah. mind has been the Quentin universe. Anyway, so there you go, everybody. We all wanted to know. Yes, and I actually, oh my gosh, I'm such a quick tangent. I actually found that out because when we were shooting uh, when we were on um, Cielo Drive, and I'm just sitting on an Apple box, and I just noticed the way um, uh, Quentin Tarantino's driver, his name is Bruce, he's a good friend, Bruce was just leaning against it, and all I saw was Michael Madsen, and I just said, holy shit, I said, wait a minute, I said, Quentin, is that, and he says, oh my goodness, he says, not only was that uh, uh, Mr. Blonde's Cadillac, he said it was Michael Madsen's Cadillac that we used in Reservoir Dogs. And then as a birthday gift, he gave it to me a few years ago. 
So that was <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's yellow Cadillac, guys. There it is. But anyway, when Brad and Leo be in the Cadillac, what I noticed is no one ever screamed, Leo. They were always saying, Brad, Brad, look <laughs> at me, Brad. I mean, the guy is a megastar beyond megastars, and you would never know it because he's such an extraordinary class act, such a gentleman. Everything you think you think of Brad Pitt, that's it. I mean, the guy, the way he smiles, the way he conducts himself. So for me, one of my favorite parts is just watching Brad do what he does. He's a filmmaker. He, he's, you know, he's a, he truly he's a, is. Hey, so there's two other pieces for me that I got to comment on. One is my daughter, or our daughter, Petrushka, and my daughter, uh, three things actually, uh, was also PAing on the show. And she was part of crowd control on Hollywood Boulevard in the middle of the night and protecting Quentin and Brad from, from, from you know, uh, non coms trying to break through the, the barriers. Um, and so there were other people whose kids had grown up around working with Quentin over the years. Um, and there was this sort of stream of second generation kids who were adult kids, young adult kids who were working on the set. And that also amplified this lovely sort of familiar, familial reality that, you know, is often done as lip service, but was actually manifest there without, without any affectation. That was a great. Another thing is the revelation of Julia Butters, the, the eight-year-old who is now oh. nine, turning on ten. Um, there's a scene that's not in the movie that is unbelievable between her and Leo, and she completely holds her own. In fact, steals it, I think. Um, it's a telephone conversation between the two yes. of them. But you, you, yes. get, you, get a, you get a slice of it with all the scenes that are in the movie between the two of them. And she is unbelievable. She's like Margaret Sullivan and, and uh, Natalie Wood as a kid all rolled into one. You know, she's got that stuff. She's just amazing. And so I, I find that, that, you know, these are, again, he finds casting is, is you know, definitive in his films. Mark, let me say, with regards to uh, Julia Butters, I'll never forget when we were shooting uh, the first two weeks at the Universal Backlot, the Western right. stuff, someone said to him, where did you find her? And he says, without missing a beat, in a gold mine. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, he came up with that that quick. And, and he meant it. And he was absolutely correct because she was extraordinary. She was absolutely amazing to watch. You think, this child is beyond her years. So, yes, I concur with everything you said about her. That, that scene where she's in her bedroom and he's on the phone with her. Yeah, oh my that God. was a great, great scene. Yeah. I'm sad it got cut. It, well, it was conflicting. It, it was creating a double ending. That he and I had been in a conversation about, it, and, I, and that was really sort of the, the issue. Was it, it, it was a gem unto itself, but it, it, it was it was diminishing the, the the wholeness of the film. So it had to it had to you know you have to let things go sometimes to for the benefit of a bigger bigger. Uh, Fair enough. Does anybody know? Can we expect a four hour and forty five minute cut of this? They've already out? added. I think they just added 18 minutes back is actually, I think there's a cut out there now with 18 minutes added. So, and so Mark, let me ask you and Mike, you, you can follow up with this as well, but is there a sense when you're making the movie that you might be doing something different, that you might be doing something that is going to be in the awards conversation again with your history with Quentin, has it been like that for every film for a while? Well, if you do two weeks on the, on the Rathskeller scene and Inglorious Bastards for a 25-page scene, um, you kind of have a sense at the end of the day that, that people are probably going to be paying attention to this. I, was re you know, I benefited enormously with another nomination from that, from that film. And I, you know, whether it's deserved or not is irrelevant. The point is, you, you, when you're on his movies, you, you're, your instincts are, we're doing something different. And we're doing something from a pure place. 
Um, whether that connects or not is, is, is really hard to say on a movie set, but you know, you, you, you do have a feeling for what's happening in front of you on the day, you know, and there's a higher percentage for me personally, whether that that's, you know, reflected in others of this is fucking cool. <laughs> you know, yes. the, the, the TF, the, the TIF, uh, factor, this is fucking cool is um, happens rather frequently on 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 his films because of because of the d- d- dynamic there's no camps there's no d- you know producer director combat zone there's no you know it's all about making the movie period and if not go yeah. home you know if you're not into that go home don't be here i i gotta say i, I heartily agree uh and and it harkens back to what i said earlier about how this was the first time in uh my career of working on any film where it didn't feel like that. There was no video village. There was no monitors for the director to sit on and have headsets on it. And there wasn't the divide of the above the line and the below the line. It was one big deal. And you're absolutely right that this is fucking cool. Like I said, I could not wait to get to work every day to see what's gonna happen today. What, what, what is this? It, it, was, it was the most incredible experience of my career. If I stopped working today, I can say I've done it. I, I, I'm not kidding. As a movie fan, as a Tarantino fan, uh, this was it, man. This is, this is what you want to work on if you're a film fan, if you want to work on this kind of environment. And that's truly what I have to say about that. So just to expound on Mark. And the contrast for me was really significant because we just came off of Ad Astra with Brad uh, right before this. And so we did, you know, two back to back. And Ad Astra was a challenged film and had a lot of complex issues. Brad was the executive producer and in every scene, including all the physicality, being in spacesuits and wire work and blah, blah, blah. Intensity of a very different level, totally professional and committed and all that. Harder film, more complex, a, a greater tension level. Nonetheless, everybody was, you know, it was a great group of people and great, just different challenges. This is my third movie with, 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 with Mr. Pitt and, and to see his state of engagement and relaxation and joy, uh, you know, in, in contrast to the burden that he carried on the film prior was just, you know, a good example of the kind of thing that, that happens when people come to work on a Quentin movie. So if you should be so fortunate, don't turn it down next time. And uh, <laughs> very true. I turned a film down that was I I, I look back uh, the Aviator. I was hired to do the Aviator, but I wasn't. The deal had some some significant issues that that were problematic. Uh, primarily, I couldn't bring a boom operator to Montreal. You know, uh, and I stand by that. Uh, it, 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 even though I I would love to have been on that film. I, I, mm. I you know that's the way the the journey of working in the movie business is. You know. You're you're uh, you're in you're a freelancer, and and what comes sure. while you're traveling the river, what comes streaming towards you is not necessarily ra- controllable, and, and it's the, the randomness is part of the adventure of it all, frankly. In regards to being a day player and bouncing around from job to job, a lot of times you may take a TV show or you're on a feature and you're there and you commit. Uh, and what I have built up a reputation as, if if Mike Morales takes a job, he's there. But I will tell you this: were I on a job and a Tarantino movie called, I'm leaving that job. And I'm going to go do that film. And I don't even know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be on the moon. I don't know <laughs> if it's going to be in the desert. I don't know if it's going to be in the worst conditions. I just know it's a Tarantino film. And now having experienced one, I am going to, I, you don't, and I, and I understand even the actors do that. 
If an actor yeah. is offered a Tarantino film, they say yes. And, and, I, and I see why. You don't even, haven't even seen a script. You don't even know if you're going to be playing, you know, the, the nobody's character. But they will do it. And, I, and that's how I feel. So there it is. You guys are tempting me to come back out of retirement. Hell, I'll just run that Checkpoint Charlie table and yeah. check cell phones. That sounds. That actually sounds like a pretty good job on that set, all things considered. That's a, that might I've be been a good fortunate. I, I, I've been fortunate. I've only left two movies over a 40-year period, and both were me being handed off from one director friends with the next director for an overlap, and that was like being you know traded to Pittsburgh or something. Um, but Quentin, I, I will say that in a weird way, I, he's protected me and others from this because he lets you, through his people, know really early on that something's cooking and that he'd like to know that you're available. I had a 15-month lead on this show, knowing it wow. was coming down more or less when it was going to happen. Uh, 12 months on, on Hateful, you know, and Hateful was shut down for a year over all the public issues that people knew about. He makes a point of casting behind the scene camera, grip, electric sound, and all the creatives. He makes a, a point of reaching out early on so that he could surround himself with that repertoire company, old school, like John Ford or George Stevens or, you know, Capra or any of those guys, where they, they, their guys were chameleons in terms of what they could deliver, but they're in, in a, in a built-in trust relationship to deliver spontaneously whatever the new, new thing we need to come up with is. And he respects that, you know, he, he respects, you know, the contribution. He doesn't, you're not a faceless number without, a, without an identity or, or a value as, as, a, as a creative. Um, and that's very, you know, that's addictive. I'm sorry, you can't, you can't get very enough good. of that. Nope. You're not, you're not in some hierarchy. He was in a conversation with you, Mike, and you're in a conversation with him, Quentin, period. It wasn't yeah. about, you know, hierarchy and power structure and class war and all that. It was like, you both love movies and you could connect on that level. That's the same with me. We, you know, I, I got in fight with him over, over the Three Stooges in Germany once. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because he's so encyclopedic, he was absolutely committed to the idea that Jules White had directed all of those movies, period. Well, I had just interviewed eight, five or six years prior Ed Berenst, who was Frank Capra's sound mixer for 18 years, starting with It Happened One Night. And I'd done a, a magazine interview because of that, about his experiences there. But he, Harry Cohn gave him the shot to go ahead and become a director at, at Columbia. And after, after he became the other director for the Three Stooges for 25 years. And so if Jules White hadn't directed it, Ed Berenst did. And Quinn was really pissed off that I was like, I interviewed the guy, Quentin. The guy was, you know, right. look at those IMDb. The guy, you know, Jules, you know, it was like, a and I let it go because it pissed him off, you know. I mean, we, jo we joke about it, but, you know, how much love can you, ha you can have so much love for somebody that passionate, that nuts, you know, that equals your own passion. You got, you know. I have to jump in on that and, and take the reins from that story to another to tell you I got in the same argument or same kind. <laughs> Uh, you know, he knows everything, guys, about every movie. And apparently he had a, a question about a rap movie, a, a, a hip hop movie. And, and he didn't know the answer. So somebody says, well, where's Mike the fucking grip? So I just happened to come strolling <laughs> around the corner. And he says, With hey, movie. Mike the grip. It, he says, he said, was Curtis Blow in Beat Street? And I said, and I quote, and I, and I am pretty embarrassed that I was this comfortable with him. I said, no, motherfucker. Uh, Curtis Blow was in Crush Groove. And then he says, oh, yes, Crush Groove, 1985, uh, produced by Menahem Glover. And then he just knew the whole thing. 
and then proceeds to tell me how uh, he says, yeah, you guys had Beat Street and we had Breakin'. But then in the same year, what happened was I'm trying to tell him that Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo came I out. I mixed that movie, movie guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. You I mixed that too. movie. Of course you did. I did. I swear to fucking God. I, mixed I that believe movie. you. I believe it. You mixed Breaking too? I did, indeed. And Anya Barrow was the DP. Schmulig, who known as Sam Fultzenberg, Schmulig was the director. It was during the 84 Summer Olympics in L.A. Absolutely yes. mixed that movie. David Walmart was his first AD. You bet. Yeah, well, Mark's resume. Mark's resume is not why he got on with Quentin. It's because he did Electric Boogaloo. So. <laughs> That's exactly it. No, no. I, Last I, American I Virgin. You got that wrong. It was Last American Virgin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, we're dealing with living history. I love that. Well, mm. there it is, man. Yeah, you mixed it. Uh, we argued about it the year of its release, and I said, "Well, if I had my phone in my pocket, I could tell you what year it came out." <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, he says, no, it didn't come out. It came out in 85. I said, no, it came out in 84. And, uh, and I said, listen, again, I'm not going to argue with Quentin Tarantino. So I, I had to drop it, just like you did, Mark. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> okay, yeah. the, fu the funniest bit about that was this earlier in that year, I spent six weeks in Sarajevo being the sole sound guy for the U.S. Olympics team's participation in, this, in the Winter Olympics. And then to come to L.A. in 84 to be – we were constantly in, 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 in gridlock over the 84 Summer Olympics because we were shooting all over L.A. during the same time in wow. 84. That's, and I, th I think you're right. I think it released that same year. I think It, was it did. And that was yeah. the big kick about it. It came out with Breaking. It was a hit. And they just came out with Breaking 2, which I said was a steaming pile of dog shit. And he says, no, Mike. It was a great film. I said, are you out of your mind? He says, you have to remember, when, when Turbo is going around the room and it's spinning, it's like when Fred Astaire. And, and I said, okay, he's looking at it as the orator that he is, not as the fan who knows the movie sucked ass. It was, <laughs> well, he has a point. It was one of the more yes, rare yes, gimbal, it was a gimbal dance scene. And it was, Jock Hadekin was brought in as a special operator. He almost busted a, a capillary because they had him upside down too long when we were doing the, the oh. inversion. Because the camera guy's upside down, you know. He's the one that's oh. turning out the room. And it was very, uh, well, both. But we're working both directions. That, I, I, it actually is a super rare thing to have a true gimbal dance sequence in a movie. Wow. You bring a couple more guys from Breaking 2 Electric Bugaloo to the podcast, and we're going to do a whole episode on that, I, <laughs> I promise you. I, I saw that in the theater back when I was in junior high and would love to talk about that uh, uh, with, with folks overall. Let wow, me ask yeah. another question about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so folks don't forget why we're here. <laughs> what was your rap party well, for the movie? Let me back up on Electric Boogaloo for a second because <laughs> here with me in Italy. We, you know, we, we got a house here in Italy now, and she was the boom operator on that movie. So she, she also has some perspective there. We'll come back and do that podcast, though. That, that, that actually is, is a viable. You know, early films of people we know now, uh, Slumber Party Massacre, Electric Boogaloo, and other, <laughs> other such, such interesting. And uh, the whole Roger Corman period. We were blessed with, with 18 months of Roger Corman in those days, wow. the last of his graduate class before he sold the studio so so rap party you want to go on go mike why don't you talk about the rap party well uh, no i i wasn't there because i was working so i regrettably oh. was not there nor was i at this uh castle true screening because i was out of town shooting a, a silly film so, so wait mike, I have, mike yes, so sir. mike you'll leave another film to work on set but you won't schedule around a rap party or cast and cruise screening like that's what you're no, doing no no well 
No, what happened was, I mean, you know, there's that's good, good question. Um, there, there's like an because uh, that's where the good stuff happens. There you go. <laughs> the the decorum of okay, I'm already working. I think it was during the week. It was like on a, a Thursday or so, and I was already on a job. And as a day player, when you're when you say, "Hey, I'll be there that Wednesday," you can't call. Say, "Oh, I can't make it." They're depending on you to be there as a day player. Now, like I said, if you're full time on a show. Yes, I will burn the bridge. I'll leave the show to go work on a Tarantino film. But for the rap party, I was working and I couldn't get away. But it is my understanding that Quentin doesn't even do the rap parties. So I, I knew I wasn't going to be missing much. Can you confirm that, Mark? Did he go? Did you go? Well, I'm going to disagree with you whether he's there or not. You know, the collegiality of this group is very unusual. A lot of us stay in, in close familial connection between films on other films. We, we go to dinner, we, we get together. There's a lot of, you know, so universality, which is different if you've been day playing and this is your first time involved with the group. It, it, connections grow emotionally over time when, when, when you've done it for a bit. But it was, a, I mean, they made an effort, you know, they really made an effort to be, you know, uh, interesting and respectful. They did it at Raleigh on the stage. My question is about the Red Apple commercial in the credits. I've been wondering since I saw it, was that always supposed to be during the credits? Was that a random thing or? I can't honestly say that I remember its place in chronology of the script when we shot it. It was very early on in the production. Where it was gonna land wasn't quite clear as, you know, the interview with the TV, you know, the TV guy, you know, doing the interview with the two of them sitting down that's in the trailer, that was clear. But, you know, uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember I can't, I can't quite place if the answer to that question, sorry. In the Red Apple universe, Hitler dies in the movie theater. Bruce Lee can't win a fight. And uh, <laughs> Roman Polanski is still happily engaged in living in Los Angeles. And married and living in Los Angeles. <laughs> to, to Sharon Tate. Yeah, that, may, that marriage never would have lasted anyway. <laughs> may, may I please quickly, Mr. Skid, tell... Because I see Bill truly is such a fan asking questions like that. And this is for all your fans out there and all the Tarantino fans. You're going to love this. And Mark, I can say I'm saying the story because I asked Quentin if I could share this with the world. And I only say that as a guy who isn't on social media, but I would tell my buddies this and they all were blown away. Listen to this. We shot a, a Charles Manson scene in the backyard of a house. And so me and some other grips were wrapping up. And uh, I just started quoting, you know, you got to make some phone calls. You got to call some people. Well, then do it, you know, just having some fun talking about Pulp Fiction. And uh, I said to one of the other grips, you know, I always wondered how Jimmy and Jules knew each other because that's not a team <laughs> that would know each other. So right, the guy right. says, well, Qu Quentin's over there. Why don't we just go ask him? <laughs> and I said, hey, Quentin. <laughs> I said, please answer this question for me because I... I'm, I'm lost. How would Jimmy and Jules have known each other? And he says, oh, I'm glad you asked, Mike the Grip. And he sits down, and now it's story time. And that's one thing <laughs> Quentin loves. Quentin loves to tell stories. So check this out. This is going to change your perception of Pulp Fiction. <sighs> he says, 20 years prior, Jimmy and Jules were partners. I said, okay, so Jimmy was a gangster. He says, yes, he was. He says, but then Jimmy meets Bonnie. I said, yeah, the black chick. He says, yeah, he marries Bonnie. He says, all right, cool. Bonnie says, if you want to keep getting this, you got to leave the life. He says, all right, I'm out of the life. Well, get this. Bonnie and Jules are brother and sister. So uh... that means, yes, 
that Quentin Tarantino is Sam Jackson's brother-in-law. So now <laughs> when you watch him screaming at Jules, he says, you don't bring a dead body in my house, Bonnie, and I'm going to get divorced. Now it's a whole different view um, of how you watch it. And this is what it was like working with Quentin Tarantino because <laughs> these revelations you would have. Like I, I said, I'm not going to ask him what was in the briefcase. He's been asked that for 25 years. I'm going to do something cooler. And I, think I, wrote, that a, was- I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper in college uh, uh-huh. on what was in the briefcase in Bulb Fiction. But anyway. Well, but I'll tell you this. Whatever you came up with, it's disappointing because one of our grips uh, disappointingly asked him, and I was so disgusted, and he told, and I was so sad. I would rather have not known. So I promise you, whatever you said in your paper, it was more exciting than what was really in the briefcase. But that being said, guys, to find out that uh, Jules and Jimmy were brother-in-laws, um, to see the craziness that would go on, to, to, to have conversations with Brad Pitt, uh, this truly was an experience I'll, I'll carry with me for the next 40 years. I don't think, Mark, I could ever work on anything unless it's another Tarantino film that will equal the, the, the amazing, amazingness of, of that which I discovered, um, that being a grip on a Tarantino film. And there it yeah, is. I say that to myself after each one. I got to tell you, I want to collect the whole set. That's, that's the truth. All right. Well, hey, guys, this was fun. Thanks a lot for coming out, guys, today. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank Thanks, you. Kid. Thanks, kid. Thanks for I having me. Man. Thank you. Listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. You can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where I review your ratings and comments, and Facebook, where I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. Please do rate us and tell your friends. And finally, for updates and other info, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On both platforms, search for Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again for a new episode next week. Now, of course, there's going to be this hour-long version of this podcast and the three-and-a-half-hour Tarantino-inspired extended <laughs> version. Yeah. Right. all the stories you guys told. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many more. There's so many more. <laughs> And Skid, you gotta you gotta allow me this one thing. Your listeners will love to hear this, Mark. I gotta tell you, since you brought up Jackie Brown, uh, let me just say really quickly: I have two children, and I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. I have no idea. So I, I, really so I was watching Jackie Brown. Yeah, with yeah my exactly. Kids. So, so I do it. I, I've used movies as a guide to tell, like, if I say to my uh, son, the reason why we're never late is because if we're late, our friend will get frozen in carbonite, and you'll get your hand chopped off. You get what I'm saying? And I show the movies to give them life experiences. So listen to what I did. I showed my son, uh, he had to be about 13 at the time, the scene where Ordell comes to get Beaumont. You dig what I'm saying? And he throws him in the trunk and he kills him. And I showed my son, I said, listen, if anyone ever comes up to you all happy, all friendly, hey, man, yeah, come with me. Hey, listen, get in this trunk real quick. I said, this is what happened with Billy D. Williams, with, with, with Lando Calrissian. Hey, it's good to see you, hon. And, and this is what happens. He throws him in the trunk, and he winds up killing him. So what happened? I'll never forget. We were shooting at Spawn Ranch, Mark. <laughs> I had to leave early one day because I had to go to the principal's office. So I get to, work, to his school. I said, what happened? And the principal said, okay, well, your son ran off campus, and we found him. I said, well, why is that? He said he didn't want to end up like Beaumont. I said, what? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> some kids had asked him to come down. He said, hey, man, we want to talk to you down this hallway. Come here. So he was just being systematic, and he ran as fast as he could. So I had to stand there talking to the principal. Like, I'm trying not to laugh. And I said, well, listen, I show my kids movies as life guide. So I go back to Quentin, and I said, Quentin, your movie was just used as a tutorial to save my son's life. Now, I'm sure that the kids weren't going to do anything to him, but he just said, Daddy told me if anyone ever says, hey, man, come on me down this thing, to take off. So Tarantino's movies are used as, as tutorials in my home for life-saving I, I got a partner anecdote for that, if you're interested. Please, please. And, and, and it goes to a couple of different places, but we're in Germany, we're on Inglorious Bastards, and my son, our son is about nine years old at the time. And, you know, we're, we're doing some serious nights there, and every weekend, this is, goes, this is another tradition on, on Quentin's movies, is he's flying in a printer from his collection. It's a screen for the crew, Friday night into, into you know, into the middle of the morning, because we're all on turn, turned around on night schedule. And he, and he flies in his technoscope two-perf print of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Wow. Okay. My son, who at that point, you know, I kind of use movies the same way at that earlier stages. They, they kind of blow you off after a while. But um, up to that point, his favorite movie is Seven Samurai, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. And Max, Max is now 20. He was nine at the time. We go to the screening. And we watch this movie, and Max, my son, gets all excited about, about the movie. And at the end, he's, like, reciting lines. He's up on the stage in front of the, the, the white screen because the lights are on, just going, grooving on. He dug the movie big time. And Quentin says, hey, Max. And Max stops dead and looks up at him and says, what? He says, well, this movie, when I was your age, when I was nine, I saw this movie. And oh. this was the movie that made me want to become a filmmaker. Cut to Hateful Eight is out there. We go to the Hollywood Walk of Fame honoring Ennio Morricone, who has done the score to Hateful Eight, to get his star in the Walk of Fame the night before the Oscars the next day, which, by the way, is the one Oscar that Hateful Eight gets, is Ennio, who had done 400 scores for, four, for, for movies, and he finally wins an Oscar on Quentin's, on Quentin's <laughs> movie. Well, there's a party after the Hollywood Walk of Fame thing at this private house up in the hills. Petrushka and I arrive, and the only people who have just arrived around the same time is Ennio, his son, and his assistant. And so we're there for about 20, 25 minutes. It's just the five of us sitting in the living room of this house that's been converted for, for a party. And Quentin had never told this to Ennio. So I, I didn't know that. I was saying, I, so I was in this conversation with him through his son interpreting. And I tell him, and his eyes just kind of go. Amazing. He, yeah, this is the business was, we're in, guys. I love it. You know? <laughs> so I had a, when you said that, I had to bring that in because the movie thing Thank about you. kids. Movies are a great teaching tool. I think you're. Yes, you're not they wrong. are. Yes, they are. Be careful what you show your kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't show them the whole movie. It's <laughs> just that scene. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That rape scene is not too much. Uh huh. <laughs>